So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And as you are turning, I'm going to make a couple of notes of things. First of all, on the first Sunday of the month, we typically break from our normal pattern. Normally what we're doing is that we go chapter by chapter through a study of Scripture. Uh, And we're going through Acts right now. But on the first Sunday of the month, we take a pause from that. And I address a particular theological topic that I believe to be important, either because our culture is going awry on it or because I just want to make sure we're grounded in this. And um, so that's what we're going to do today. And I will just acknowledge that we're going to address something that is very unpopular in our culture right now, and that is the concept of biblical patriarchy. Um, How many of you all have heard this term in anything but a negative context? Yeah, usually this is spoken of negatively. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And then also, uh, Hannah, if you will go to our next slide. I got really fancy, and I created a QR code so you could download the notes. So if you want to scan that with your phone, you should be able to access the website where we have our notes. I normally send them out ahead of time, but if you've maybe noticed when I email out the notes ahead of time, uh, and then you... When I actually preach them, they're different. It's because I'm normally doing some edits and revisions all the way up to Sunday morning. Uh, So this allows you to have the most recent ones that I at least put up there. All right. Uh, So here's what we'll do. I am going to open us in prayer. And if if this is too buzzy, just let me know and I'll I'll yell. You're fine-tuning. I like how our elders, they do a lot of things around here. Yeah. All right. So as you're turning, I am going to open in prayer um, and ask God to just anoint this time. Uh, Father God, I am asking that you would be with us today. Uh, Lord, I am acknowledging that we are so uh, susceptible to allowing our view of you or our view of men and women, uh, our view of everything, to be influenced by uh, those who hate you or by our culture more than by your word. And so today we're asking that, Lord, that as I speak, I would not speak my opinion, but that instead, as we teach through the word of God, your Holy Spirit would illuminate it to us, uh, that, that only that which is in accordance with your truth would be taught today. And then, Lord, may we not just have uh, receptive ears and hearts to your truth, but then, Lord, you would give us clarity, that we would be catechized in your truth and able to clearly represent what you have taught. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so a uh, key thing here, if you all will remember in Genesis 1:27, uh, when God is talking about creating humanity, he says, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That should tell us something right off the bat. First of all, that both men and women are created in the image of God. Uh, This, I would argue, means that they have equal value as image bearers. But second, it means that the genders, as God has designed them, reflect something about who God is. We are proclaiming the glory of God in a unique way, which means we better get our understanding of gender right. Now, we went into much more detail about this uh, a couple of years ago when we did a series on biblical anthropology. I would highly recommend get on the website, listen to those. Uh, But I'm just going to go straight to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 22. And I need someone to read, uh, first of all, just 22 through 24. And then I'll need someone else to read 25 through 33. So who's got 22 through 24 for me? Go for it, Sam. Sam. 
All right. I think we just found the least popular passage of scripture uh, in our modern day. All right. I need someone to read 25 through 33. You'll note that it's a much longer section. Go for it, John. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loved his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well done, well done. I want to point out a couple of things here before we move past this. One, you will note that the section giving instructions to wives is much shorter. Uh, it is. Uh, two, you will note that the section that is referring to men, not only is it longer, but it goes into almost an amalgamation of Christ's relationship to the church. As he's talking, or as he's writing, that is, he, he at some point gets to a place where he's like, oh, I, I'm, I'm talking about Christ in the church. Almost like he's drifted so close because these two things are so clearly related. What he has said is that a husband is to love his wife and give himself up for her as Christ loves and cares for the church. And this is critical, as we're going to see, that if we understand the role of men and women in the home, it is going to give us a proper understanding of how Christ relates to the church. Do you think that that's pretty important? That maybe, just maybe, if our enemy does not like the relationship of Christ to the church, that maybe one of the ways they're going to try to create problems or dissociation or, or frustration is that they're going to attack the home first. So I'm just going to point out a few things. These are commands for the husband. Um, so on the next slide, you'll see here that uh, this is a simplification, uh, but we see that the husband is commanded to love his wife as his own body. He's commanded to give himself up for her as Christ did to the church. That's protection language. We'll see that there's language of how Christ sanctifies the church with the washing the water of his word. There's clear discipleship language in here. We'll see that a husband is to nourish and provide for his wife as his own body. There is protection, but also provision here. We'll see also that the two are to be one, become one flesh. If we're going to look at Genesis 1 and also Genesis 9, there's language of a command to be fruitful and multiply. Interesting. So procreation seems to be built into this. It's not only the man who's commanded this, but, but this comes up. And then we see this language of women submitting to their husbands with a husband as head of the wife in, in such a way that he is to lead and have authority. And can we just acknowledge that that is the thing that makes even evangelical Christian cringe? You all notice this, that even faithful, otherwise faithful pastors are afraid to teach that. I mean, even as I was preparing this, I'm like, oh, I know that I know that this steps on toes. But can I just step back for a second and say, if we do not allow God to communicate what he has designed, if we don't submit ourselves to that, no matter how much it might make us cringe 
because it's so against our modernist sensibilities. If we don't let God speak to how it is made, how the family is made, then who are we allowing to have authority here? Now, we'll just bring this up. Not long ago, a couple of years ago, I guess it's been a few years, uh, I was asked to preach at a, at a wedding. And I'm doing all the premarital counseling, and I mention what I normally do, and they asked me very politely not to teach on Ephesians 5. Because they said, well, we've got this real jerk of a chauvinist guy, who he's going to twist that and he's going to be all upset. And I, I graciously said, you know, if, if you don't want me, like, this is the key passage on marriage. And either I preach Ephesians 5, or, or it's probably better that I don't do your wedding. And they said, okay, let's let you do it. And of course, we taught through it, and it did just fine. But I want to note that, that tendency. We are afraid to bring up certain things from Scripture because we know it is like fingernails on a chalkboard to certain people who have seen it misrepresented or misused. But I just want to clarify, if we do not let God speak to it, what we're essentially doing is saying, hmm, anybody who doesn't like it gets to d dictate how things are taught. We are not going to do that. We are going to teach from Scripture what God has designed. So I'll just break it down bit by bit here. In Ephesians 5.25, we'll notice that there is this command to love. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is very clearly caring, loving, protective language. Uh, husbands are commanded to love their wives. Uh, we'll see this in other passages. In 1 Peter 3, a man is to live with his wife in an understanding way honoring her as a weaker vessel. Uh, we see it carry over into how husbands or fathers are to lead in their children, uh, that they're not to provoke their children to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Husbands and wives are to teach their children diligently, Deuteronomy 6. But this clear language of love permeates. So can we just, before we go any further, does this possibly just plain rule out chauvinism? Right? If a man is ruling with an iron fist and is abusive or is otherwise, could we just maybe say that that's not biblical? I mean, it should be pretty simple. But have you noticed that any time you bring up the concept of biblical headship, somebody brings up abuse and they're like, oh, but that just gets abused. You can't do it. And I'm like, if God commanded it, then that's what it is. And if I'm looking at his commands in detail, I'm seeing a man who is understanding his wife, who is gentle with her, who honors her, who cares for her, who protects her who nourishes her? Brothers and sisters, that's not chauvinism. So just in case, part of what I'm doing today is hopefully providing you with some biblical apologetics when somebody comes against the biblical role of the family. But carrying on, we also see this language of protection. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up is sacrificial protective language. Now, for Jesus, it is his atoning death. He stood in our place and took on the wrath of God that we deserve to protect us from that wrath. He redeemed us. He atoned for our sin. That is the ultimate in laying down his life. But here we see that the husband's relationship to the wife is supposed to be reflective of Christ's relationship with the church, and built into this is protection. And we're going to go into this later, but in 1 Timothy 5, it says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now that's provision language, but can we also kind of acknowledge that provision and protection kind of go together? More on that momentarily. In Psalm 82, men are commanded to rescue the weak and the needy, to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. 
We're commanded to rescue those who are being taken away to death, to hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Jesus, in Luke 11:21, when he's describing a home, he says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Notice this is not primarily a passage on the Second Amendment, but I will just acknowledge that when we see mention of weapons in Scripture, it is generally used in a positive sense and often is related to men and women defending their homes. Uh, I will just say, um, I, I, I believe that it is a biblical thing. Anytime there was weapons confiscation mentioned in Scripture, holy people were hiding their weapons and keeping them. Uh, I feel like that should just be noted. That's not our primary text today, but I will just acknowledge that. We see other places in Psalm 144 that a man is to train his hands for war. Um, we also see in Exodus 22:2 that if a thief breaks in in the night and the owner of the home strikes him down to his death, he is not guilty of bloodshed because he is defending his home. Now, I don't want to go too far because I recognize that this is not primarily what's happening in Ephesians 5. But the language is that the man is to give himself up for his bride. He is indeed to protect her. And I don't see how we can get away from the idea that he might need to use force for that. But it's biblical. Carrying on, um, we see protection. We also see provision. Um, we see, uh, of course, no one ever hated his wife. Um, his own, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And we see this language again and again, that a man is to provide for his family. Uh, we also saw in 1 Timothy 5, 8, I read this before, it says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's really harsh language. The idea that a man is to provide and care and that if he does not, he is like an infidel heavy. Of course, we can easily see in Ephesians 5:24 this language of the husband as head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and as himself its savior. In 1 Corinthians 11:3, he says very clearly, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Notice, so often when we talk about headship in the home, it immediately jumps over to Christ's headship over the church. If one is a picture of the other, I'm going to argue that if you do not do one right, you are probably going to teach both your wife and your children a false view of Christ's relationship with the church. As I often say, more on that later. All right. Uh, we will also say uh, in, in this Ephesians passage, there's mention of the two becoming one flesh. I will just say even more explicitly in... Uh, in Genesis 9, that there is language of us being commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Again, this is not the primary th thrust of our sermon today, but that is how God has designed a family, that a man and a woman come together and they have children. And we recognize that not everyone is blessed with children. Uh, please don't think that you are somehow failing God. But let me just tell you this. God expects that you have children if you can. If you are married, that should be the expectation. And unfortunately, we are in a time where people are like, ah, I want to travel, I don't want to have children. Or, oh, I want to build my career, I don't want to have children. The command, it is a command to be fruitful and multiply. If you are able, praise God. Anyway, um, we will continue on. I just want to draw some attention here. Um, uh, you could have a look at Ephesians 5 again and see this clear language 
But if you can just kind of think, how often when we hear talk of biblical headship, people get all cringy and they start thinking of how, oh, but I know my uncle so-and-so who ruled his home with an iron fist and I think of how his wife suffered and she was weak and she was struggling. Can I just very briefly have a look at Proverbs 31? And I would like to just look at what we see. When we see a woman who is thriving under her husband's headship, what does it look like? It says that her husband trusts in her, in verse 11. Verse 12, that she does him good. Verse 15, she provides food for her household. So she's providing a nurturing in the home. She considers a field and buys it. Notice this. This is a woman who's engaged in real estate. This is not a woman who has to hide. This is not a woman who is unable to use money because her husband doesn't allow her. This is a woman who is taking what her husband is providing and she is multiplying it because that's how God has wired women. We can go on that she's strong. She opens her hand to the poor. Her husband is known in the gates. Why do you think this is important? In a description of a woman who is thriving, that there's mention of her husband being in the gates. Does anybody know who stood in the gates? It would have been leaders of the community. The implication here is that he is in a position of leadership because she is running the home so well that he is being lifted up because of her goodness in the home. We see that strength and dignity are her clothing. Her mouth utters wisdom and teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and praises her. She fears the Lord. Can, can I just draw some attention to this and say, this is very clearly a woman who is thriving. She leads her home well. She's a blessing to people outside of her home. She's getting things done. Her children are being discipled. She has wisdom. She's clothed with dignity. This is a woman who is not boisterous and, and foolish She's wise and she's respected. And as a result, things are happening for their whole family being brought along. And so I will tell you, I'm not genuine. I'm, I don't know of, I know enough of the families in here. I'm not fearful of this. But if your wife cowers at home, if you don't allow her to have access to the finances, um, if she has to check everything in the house with you, uh, you're probably bottlenecking her from actually thriving, and you are probably moving into something that we would call chauvinism. Conversely, if you are not leading and overseeing in the home, and she's constantly wondering, like, what am I even supposed to be doing here? Um, if you're not providing for her, and she's got to go and, 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 and win the bread instead of you because you're busy playing video games and being lazy, notice that both of these things are in error. All right, carrying on. So we have some commands for the wife. Um, that we've already reviewed, but I want to draw attention to just a few of these because this is primarily on what men are supposed to do. Um, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which God's sight, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. 
and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Notice the language here is for a woman whose husband is not a believer, that she lives the Proverbs 31 life anyway in such a way as to benefit him and bless him and nourish in the home, that she's thriving in such a way that he's looking and saying, look at this amazing woman, how God has blessed me, that that is one more way that he is one, that he is drawn into the faith. Praise God. I will also briefly mention 1 Timothy 2.12, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, can I just say, this is one verse that is coming under attack even among evangelicals, possibly more than any other. How many times I've heard somebody try to twist this or whatever, and they'll say, but this woman is so gifted. I'll say, praise the Lord. She's gifted. Awesome. She's so knowledgeable. Da-da-da-da. Yeah, praise the Lord. But I can't get around what this says. I mean, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or usurp authority over a man. That means a woman cannot hold the title pastor. It's just... If we're going to say pastor means elder, and it does, I mean, it means shepherd, and we, we apply it to the authority of eldership, I can't get around this, brothers and sisters. And here's why. Paul, whenever he's challenged on this, appeals to the created order. He doesn't say, well, it's because of the fall. He doesn't say, because our culture, it's better. He appeals to the created order, almost as if what he is saying, not just almost, as if what he is saying is God has designed something in the home to function a certain way. And we can't usurp that. We're messing something up when we do. Titus 2 carries this theme on. It says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train up young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Notice the language here, that the word of God may not be reviled. Anyway... So we see several commands for the wife. She's to submit to her husband, love and respect him. She's to be adorned with gentle and quiet spirit. She's to do good and not fear. She's to teach and lead women, not men, but teach and lead women. I will say, by the way, we have often, especially in the last few hundred years, no, I need to say that carefully, especially in the last 50 years or so, as we have tried to put women into positions of authority over the church as a whole, We've been severely lacking in women teaching and discipling other women as they've been designed to do. Whole other thing. They're to work in the home. They're to be self-controlled, pure, and kind. This is why, of course, we see in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman, and God is head of Christ. Paul wants us to understand how this authority structure works so we can understand how the relationship between God and his church works. This is why um, I use the term patriarchy, and man, I know people hate this term. Um, But if you look at the definition of patriarchy, it means ruling father. Uh, It's a system or society of government in which the father or eldest male is head of the family and descent is traced through the male line. If we're going to look at the various structures here, we're going to see about four different ways that headship is is not designed or is communicated in the home. Uh, One is what we would call matriarchal. You can go to the next slide there. In matriarchal, we would call this mother rule. This is what happens when often when men are taken away or abdicate their role in leadership. 
the mother just kind of takes over. We have seen this in a lot of urban communities, sadly, as our government took away the requirement for a woman who was pregnant out of wedlock to name her name either name the father of the baby. Now he is no longer responsible for raising his children, nor is she. Who is the government? Notice what happens in the void of an actual authority, especially in a matriarchal system. What ends up happening is the government becomes the protector and the provider and the teacher. Sadly, what's happening in a matriarchal system is often not even matriarchy. What's happening is the government is taking on control of fatherhood. Pay attention to this. It is by design. Highly recommend, I don't know that he's a believer, but the economics of Thomas Sowell, where he walks into the data on this, how our government did a few key things that took responsibility away from men, in some ways took away authority from men and put children in a situation where the government got to be the father. Now think about this. If I am to look to my father and get a picture of how Christ loves the church, but now my father has been unable to lead and provide and protect and do all the things that Christ does for the church, what do you think that communicates to a child? It communicates that you don't need God the Father, you don't need your human father, you need the government. It is heresy. Anyway, continuing on. The other version that we often see is what we would call egalitarian. And essentially, it means just equal in all things. Not just equal in value, but equal in all authority. So then the idea is there's actually no ruler. If matriarchy is mother rule, egalitarian is there's nobody in charge. It is as democratic as it gets. Um, there's no real key language on like who does what, who is going to be the protect, protector. It's, it's just not there. Sadly, this has become very popular, even in evangelical circles. Uh, but how do I get a picture of who God is if there's not someone who is in authority? If my parents handle everything democratically, what does that mean? Who, how do I get an idea of what, who is in charge and who leads and how they lead with grace and love and gentility and protection. We would also say there's complementarian, and I want to be very cautious because I would say, and historically I've used the term complementarian, I think it's still a fine term, but sadly it's being co-opted. Complementarian means different but equal. The idea is that there is a complementing of roles between a man and a woman, that she brings something unique to the table, he brings something unique to the table, and they work together. We would absolutely say that this is true and biblical, but have you noticed something? Complementarian just that language doesn't give a clear definition of headship. It's a little bit more palatable way to talk about patriarchy in a way that maybe doesn't offend the sensibilities of the feminists, if I'm being clear. I will say we're, we're complementarian. We say praise the Lord. But I've noticed that those who are flatly egalitarian start pretending like they're complementarian so they can get away with it. And then they do everything else in the church, everything that is not at all complementarian. I have begun to use the word patriarchal because it just smacks right in the face. I know that like people cringe, but I'm like, if headship is there, how do I get around it? This is what it says. Yes, we're complementarian, but let's just face it. Like the thing that the man brings to the table is he leads and he provides and he protects. And, and the woman nurtures and she loves and she respects and she submits. And it's a beautiful, certainly complementarian thing. But the father has to be in charge. Continuing on. 
So if we're going to look at headship in Scripture, we see that um, headship is always representative of power. Kings and priests would be anointed and crowned on their heads. We see in 1 Samuel 10, 2 Samuel 1, 2 Kings 9, Psalm 21, and many other places, headship is clearly used to refer to authority. I and mean, there's a reason why I'm bringing this up. In the Septuagint, we see the word kephale, head, which, by the way, it's a Septuagint is the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek. Since the New Testament is written in Greek, and they used the Septuagint when they were doing that, it gives us some clear understanding of what the theologians of the New Testament writing scripture understood about the Old. Anyway, so it might refer to an elderly person, or a prominent leader, or a king. Generally, it was someone in authority. And so Paul uses headship always to refer to authority. He does it here in Ephesians 5, and Colossians 1, and Colossians 2. Why do I bring this up? Because there are those, even among evangelical churches, that really don't like the idea of headship. And so they've tried to say, ah, headship just means like headwaters, like a source. Like, you know, Eve was taken out of Adam's side. It's a whole thing. It just means that men are the source of women. And I'm like, that is nonsense. Everywhere we see scripture, authority is tied to the language of headship. Why would you want to dodge that? Anyway, so really, really clearly, we'll see this clear distinction that patriarchy is not chauvinism. Uh, chauvinism is tyranny, right? Chauvinism is when a husband or father leverages authority for selfish gain. This is the opposite of what we see in Scripture. In Scripture, what we see is the husband is the authority, and he's to leverage his authority for the good of those who he is overseeing. This is why we call it husbandry when someone cares for animals, when someone grows a garden, that in your dominion over that thing, you are to make it flourish. Husbandry, this is why we call it that. Same way, if I am head over my family, the way to know I'm doing it well is if they are flourishing and thriving. Uh, my wife and I were discussing uh, things going on and she's, she's gonna beat me at some academic pursuits. And she's like, do you want me to slow down so, so that you get done first? I'm like, no, because you're my glory. And I mean this. We see in 1 Corinthians 11 that she is like, woman is the glory of man. Like, you should be able to look at my wife and see her thrive, and that should say something good about me. This is how it's designed. I want to look at the men in this church and I do, by God's grace, and see their wives thriving and say, well done, brother. Like, that, that is the ultimate check. Are you doing something good as if your wife is thriving? This is why marriage is sacred for so many reasons. We see that it is particular for God building up his kingdom. He is teaching something. He cares about it. He gives glory in the simplest of functions as husband and wife raise children and serve one another in fulfillment of the law. There is something powerful about the household. There is something that God is doing at that level that affects everything else. So we'll show you a couple of things here. It says for the, uh, if we look at Malachi 2.16, it says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Notice this language here is if you are not protecting your wife, if you abandon her, you are clothing yourself with violence. This is how important the headship role and the household is. We already looked at 1 Timothy 5, 8. 
Um, so Proverbs 5.18 talks about uh, let your fountain be blessed, rejoice in the wife of your loose youth. We see again and again this idea that I am to see something happen in the household and that a husband's role is to provide and protect and allow this to flourish. So in order for this to work, though, let's just be very clear, we have to have manly men, which is like the other thing. Have you noticed that our culture hates a couple of things? They really don't like male headship, and they're really coming against masculinity. Have you noticed this? Almost as if, and have you even hear, like, what do we hear the feminists say? We're going to smash the patriarchy. And I think about, like, hmm, Anytime my enemy hates something so much, and when the enemies of God hate something, I want to kind of dig in, because just because they hate it doesn't mean it's bad, but it's interesting how many of these things that I'm like, you don't like masculinity? You don't like male headship? There's something going on here. So I just want to draw attention. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Does this sound a lot like the things that the husbands were commanded to do? Be righteous, be kind, be humble. If we carry on, we see language in 1 Corinthians 16 of be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. That's masculine language. 1 Kings 2.24 talks about be strong and show yourself a man, keep the charge of the Lord your God. Uh, in Psalm, even the very first song talks about walking not in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners. This idea of men, men delighting in the law of the Lord meditating on the law, and then flourishing as a result. We see 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about obtaining, abstaining from sexual immorality. We can go on. The key language related to discipline in Hebrews 12. Interesting. If we're going to simplify these uh, key things related to manliness, we see righteousness, kindness, humility, watchfulness, strength, love, obedience to God, sexual purity, um, and if I could just kind of say, are these maybe things that are directly being attacked right now? Um, righteousness is hated. Kindness doesn't really have a humility. Notice, you have a choice these days between weak, worthless men or, or these chauvinist jerks. And, and that those are the two choices that are lifted up. Have we noticed this? The idea of sexual purity is right out the window. Obedience to God, genuine love, strength is even scorned. You notice these things that are directly tied to the key component in the home are being attacked by our culture. Uh, I brought this up in a, in a podcast where there was a Christian guy who got a little upset that I used the word patriarchy. Got really ruffled about that. We, we emailed back and forth and we're discussing, we're keeping it friendly. Um, but I challenged him on something and he says, well, it's not a sin to be soft. And I pointed out that he was, in point of fact, wrong about that. If you want to look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9, where Paul is talking about who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you had the chance to study Greek, as only a few of us have, this phrase, men who practice homosexuality, actually is not one word for homosexuality, but two. Uh, the two words, one is malakoi, the other was, is arsenikoitai. You don't have to remember those words, but they're important for a reason. We have, we have been challenged to translate them well because there haven't always been good, good English words for it. 
Um, in fact, the word for homosexual just got invented in English language less than 100 years ago. Um, and so we had a word for it in Greek, but here's what's interesting. If you're going to look at uh, this one on the bottom, where homosexuality is condemned, it is two words from the Septuagint referencing homosexuality in Leviticus. It is the word for man and the word for bed. Paul makes up a new word by squishing those together and refers to man-bedders. I don't have to go into detail as to what he's referring to. I think you understand. Those who need to understand do understand. The language here is man-bedders, and it is clearly and unequivocally ruling out homosexuality. Little side note, there are those on TikTok who are not Greek scholars at all that try to say it's a big conspiracy and the Bible wasn't against homosexuality and that only showed up later as part of a conspiracy in a Bible translation in 1949. The reason why it showed up in 1949 there is because we didn't have that English word before then. It came up in that translation because the English language changed. But let me just tell you, this has clearly been a direct mark against homosexuality and always has. Here's what's interesting though. What we don't get in the English translation is this word malakoi which means soft to the touch or effeminate. Now some will argue, and I'm going to keep this very cautiously G-rated, that one is a reference to the more active partner in the relationship, and the one is to the more passive partner. Hopefully that's clear enough without going into great detail. Um, and you could say, possibly, but the reality is, the plain facts, is it is condemning effeminate living in men. Plain as can be. So I'm just going to want to challenge and say how interesting that, again, in our culture, that hates the things of God, they've elevated both masculinity and effemininity. So I will tell you, brothers and sisters, it, it really is a sin to be soft. A man should not be soft. A man should act like a man. Notice something else here. Anytime we see reference to a king being godly, or to a person who meets the qualifications of elder in a church, and I promise we're almost done here, we see that the home and their authority there has to run first. We see in, uh, let's see, in 1 Timothy 3, it says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Notice the language is, he's got to do it in his home. He needs to do it well, with gentleness, with respect, keeping order in his home, and then he just might meet the qualifications to be an elder in the church. Again, this is another reason why women can't be pastors. Carrying on, we see this same kind of language used in reference to civil authorities. In Deuteronomy 17, it says, The king must not take many wives. Husband of one wife. He must uh, not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Not a lover of money. He's to care about the law. Remember all that language about loving the truth and obedience to God? Also, he must not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left, Deuteronomy 17.20. I notice that this is not the same, but this is pretty similar to all of our commands for men, even as it relates to authority in the home. So if I'm going to understand all this and say, like, man, it sure seems like what God is doing in the home is something specifically designed to build the whole rest of society. And if we get that wrong, 
even if we're just so afraid we're going to offend our culture that has only seen something wicked when we talk about patriarchy. I'm going to say, let's teach the truth anyway. So I'm just going to close out here and read this passage. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansing her, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Brothers and sisters, not only is our household at stake, or our households at stake, but the very glorification of God in the church is at stake. We must get this right. Uh, last thing I'll do here is just refer to a couple of books, or three books I will recommend. One is Family Worship by Donald Whitney. It's a really quick read, really easy. Very fast, I'll just tell you. I will often notice that men, they go to work. They work all day, they come home, they take care of their children. Hopefully they're in the Word some, but often their wives, if they work from home, they might go to two or three Bible studies. They might be listening to three or four different sermon podcasts, and often a wife will know more than her husband. I've seen it many times. Uh, and so a husband is like, how can I lead my home spiritually when she knows so much more than me? First, I would say you are absolutely qualified because you are called to it. doesn't matter how much she knows, you are still the one that's tasked for, with this. But also, uh, family worship gives you a really quick understanding of how to do family worship. You can do it, dads. It doesn't matter that your wife knows more than you. That reflects well on you, actually. Um, family worship, I'll recommend. Also, Vodi Bauckham's book, Family Shepherd, goes into more detail on this. Highly recommend it. Uh, the last one is C.R. Riley's The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Lots of good stuff in there about how what you do in your home, no matter how small, does something big for the kingdom. Cool. With all that in mind, I will pray. And then who is on for gospel? All right, Greg's on for gospel. Father God, may you just work in us to not just be uh, hearers of the word, but doers. Receive glory. May we raise up godly families and may we see a wonderful, positive turnaround in our culture as a result. Lord, I pray for many more to raise up faithful families, for us to produce godly elders of churches and Lord, godly civil magistrates uh, that all comes back to our home. God bless our wives. May they thrive. May we lead and protect and provide for them well. Lord, I pray you bless the people in our church with many, many children. Um, and that their children would have many children, and that the discipleship would be multi-generational and to your glory. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.